Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we are here with a very special guest today to talk about all things Greek. His name is Pavlos Rufos. He is the author of a new book called A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters, available now through Chicago University Press. He is also a PhD candidate in German economic policy at the University of Kassel in Germany, as well as a psychedelic bordigist. Hello, Pavlos. Hello. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so great uh, of you to come in here. Um, we, uh, it was very nice uh, to meet you first at JFK Airport the other day. Uh, <laughs> you managed to uh, arrive at one of the most hellish places, I think, in the entire world. <laughs> and you managed to see some of the most boring parts of New York City right off the bat, like the Belt Parkway and Coney Island Avenue. But uh, welcome to your first time in the States and in uh, New York City. Thanks, thanks. It was great. It was a great ride. Oh, so you, are you complimenting my driving? Yes. Oh, wow. wow. I appreciate that. I think some of my friends would uh, disagree with you there. So, I, uh, I learned to drive like my family drove, which is uh, how New Yorkers drive, kind of crazy. And I have literally had some of Jamie's th- friends um, throw up from uh, my... Or have a panic uh, attack. Yeah, from my Mul- aggressive There driving. have been multiple panic attacks. But maybe, is that how they drive in Greece? Like, did it make you feel at home? That's exactly the point, yeah. Because mm. after being in Germany for such a long time where everyone drives very safely and properly, I came here and I, I, it felt familiar because everyone's driving a bit crazy. Well, I'm glad we could make you feel at home yeah, here right. in the new country. I, I also have to add, Pavlos, too. Um, I mean, you, you are a grown-ass man uh, and you're a, a serious guy, but also a fun guy. Uh, I have to say it was very charming when we got to Paul Maddox's house and you uh, looked out over the harbor and saw the Statue of Liberty for the first time. Seeing a communist go, that's the Statue of Liberty, was, a, uh, I think, a very uh, fun, fun moment for me. I was very touched. I was very touched. Well, you were saying, right? You've seen it a million times in films, and it was actually... Exactly, exactly. You've seen pictures, films, you heard about it in songs, and then suddenly you see it there in front of you. That's that the weird. power. Yeah, yeah. I love the power taking of empire, folks. people who are in New York for the first time to go on the Staten Island Ferry to see the Statue of Liberty, because it really is pretty cool it is, in yeah. real life. And Why? What's it, cool about it's be- it? It's beautiful it's a and cool. big green yeah. statue. Yeah. And she's holding that ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so decadent like America is. And then yeah. you get to have a slice of pizza on the other side and go right back. Yeah. It really makes, uh, when somebody comes in from out of town, especially for the first time, it gets us cynical New Yorkers to kind of think a little differently about our city. Like, wow, maybe this place isn't a total fucking dump in a shithole. You know, maybe it is a kind of a cool, fun, exciting city. And then our friends leave and then we go back to just shitting mm-hmm. on it all the time. Yeah. It's <laughs> the same in Greece. Like everyone who comes to Greece, they want to see the Acropolis, right? So you're like, oh, fuck, again, the Acropolis, really? But then after I started taking people more and more, I realized that it is actually a nice place because it has this fantastic view over the whole of Athens and you don't get the chance to, t- to see that anywhere else. So tourists are good. Tourists are good. Only for our own uh, base self-interest of uh, actually being able to existentially uh, get through you know, another week of this uh, horrific <laughs> neoliberal hell world. Um, Jamie, do you want to ask the question today? Sure. So we'd like to ask you an icebreaker question. We ask all our guests here at the Antifada. And that question is, Pavlos, what is your position on the Macedonia naming dispute? (laughs) (laughs) I was extremely happy um, that we got this um, final victory. (laughs) Because after 10 years of austerity where everything has gone terrible, it is really, really nice to have the chance to 
to win in a dispute that is completely irrational, <laughs> stupid, beyond belief, and to actually, you know, to get to get some kind of sense of victory. Yeah, all the years of rioting and uh, <laughs> occupations and general strikes have finally paid off. Macedonia changed their name to Fymore, right? <laughs> no, it's it's Northern Macedonia. Oh, they, that. it was originally going to be former Yugoslavian Republic that, that of Macedonia. That was the name until the deal, right? That was oh, the name. Okay. Firom. It was like former Yugoslavian right. Republic of Macedonia. And they, they thought yeah, it sounded Filo, too much like... like uh, <laughs> 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 that would, no, that would just cause another round of controversy. No, that was the, the funny thing about it, because the, the, the dispute from the Greek nationalist side is, is they don't want the name Macedonia used, right? But the name was already there in the previous name, right? Nobody, nobody was, you know, Firom. Mm -hmm. They just never spelled it out. Right, and now they call it Northern Macedonia, and you know they're, they're somehow not still not happy about it. Although it kind of separates the different. But Macedonia. that was the last conflict in the Balkans. It's resolved. <laughs> yeah. and now it'll be in peace. Yeah, yeah. Well, for the people out there who don't know about it, it is a very, very trivial uh, thing. Uh, obviously, naming dispute over a. Uh, country and a state but um if you actually go on wikipedia which i did do and you're doing say research for a podcast and you want to know about i don't know the greek civil war or something like that you go on wikipedia first right to kind of get your feet wet somehow i ended up from going from the greek civil war to like the various political crises over macedonia that like have happened over the years like a real like stupid but serious thing and i hate the world for a lot of reasons but one of them is that the greek civil war wikipedia entry you can read in like maybe five minutes the naming dispute one anybody there at home go look up macedonian naming dispute i swear to fucking god it is like a fucking novel they go year by year for like the last hundred years about all the ins and outs of this what the fuck is wrong with this world well we're gonna get into that a little bit on the episode i think um we're also gonna talk are we or can we just be done with that yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fair yeah it's, it's a silly thing um well i mean we're gonna get into what's wrong with this world oh yes yes certainly that, that is that's the primary topic of this show um we're also going to talk a little bit about the grexit or you know the grexit that never was um and i'm sure that our guest has uh lots of expertise on that lots of things to say um I guess we've seen it evolve a little bit, right, since the Grexit um, into some sort of widespread Euroscepticism that we had the Brexit, which actually happened. And now uh, we have in America, of course, the Blexit, which is, of course, the black Brexit. Wow. So uh, I guess my question for you is, how do you feel about the Blexit? Has the Grexit assumed its ultimate form or what's going on? What is the Blexit? I, I, I really didn't get that. Uh, if we didn't say it before, we'll say it again. Welcome to Hell World. <laughs> uh, how would you explain what Blexit um, is? It's the really, Blexit oh. is basically a campaign, uh, luckily not a grassroots one. No. It's more of an astroturf <laughs> thing uh, to convince black Americans to, uh, quote unquote, uh, leave the plantation of the Democratic Party and right. walk into the, uh, the waiting arms of the GOP. <laughs> And it had its first victory when a woman put on a Make America Great Again hat, started a GoFundMe saying that she was kicked out of her home uh, for being a black conservative and she needed money f to keep the Blexit work alive. She got $150,000 from idiot MAGA supporters mm -hmm. and then revealed it was all a scam. <laughs> Unfortunately, she didn't actually get $150,000. Uh, and uh, the money that she did get, she returned, uh, which is very uh, an I'm unfortunate, cut that part out. Yeah, unfortunate that's, that's thing. That sucks. But 
I like I liked her spirit anyway. Well, I, I think it's uh, it's really indicative of uh, U.S. politics that we should take such a momentous thing like Brexit and uh, turn it into such a uh, bizarre, slightly racist and uh, shitty thing like the idea mm. of uh, Blexit, you know. Black folks in America walking away from the plantation. Shut yeah. the fuck up. It's fucking well, disgusting. I think we're going to get into that a little more during the show. Like why all of this uh, anti-globalization energy is coming from the right instead of the left. That's exactly right. So let's do a little housekeeping and then we'll jump right into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I guess first I'd like to welcome all of our new listeners, whether you came here from our appearance on the Chapo Twitch stream from the election night or... Maybe you are an anti-fascist who listened to our episode with Jay Firestone last week. Perhaps you're a fascist who listened to our episode with Jay Firestone. Regardless of who you are, we welcome you. We look forward to a comradely exchange of ideas. Um, I'd also like to remind you that our show relies on your support. So if you like what you hear, or maybe you hate what you hear, but you just want <laughs> more stuff to hate listen to, you can uh, sign up on patreon.com slash the Antifada and uh, that'll get you some bonus content as well as access to our wonderful Discord community where you can uh, make friends or just have a politics death match with people. Take your pick. I should also mention that two of the three Antifada folks are going to Mexico for 10 days starting next Friday. Me and Sean are going to Mexico. <laughs> you know, just two men on the beach together. Uh, maybe the nude beach, just sharing, you know, our friendship and, uh, you know, just getting closer with one another. Catch Jay- us on the jungle side of Tulum. <laughs> Sorry you can't come, babe. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. But I will be here uh, running, posting things in uh, in everyone else's absence because I work the hardest. Uh, no, uh, me and Sean are going to Mexico and we have some great content planned for when we're away. Uh, I'm not going to say what it is just yet. That's not because we don't really know what it is, but we just don't want to ruin the surprise. That's right, yeah. So stay tuned, folks. Definitely. Uh, There's one other thing, too. Um, uh, Our good friend with the, I'd say, one of the top two um, goth socialist podcasts in New York City, Jake Flores, is um, having me on to talk about the history of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, and that will be dropping as a crossover while we are in Mexico. So you will be getting good Antifada content combined with Pod uh, Damn, Damn America. America. One of Hell our, yeah. Maybe one of our top... Yeah, I already said that shit. You like it. You love Jake Flores. It's good. He's fucking it's great. good, folks. He's, great. He's, good. He's uh, one of uh, the DHS's uh, top 10 comics to watch of 2018, <laughs> as he likes to say about himself. Hell yeah. Let's, I, let's... I should also note, um, we're going, the places we're going in Mexico include Mexico City, or as they call it, De Efe. They include the state of Chiapas, which, fuck yeah. Fuck <laughs> yeah. yeah, Chiapas. And it includes the island of Holbosch. So if any of our listeners, any of our international listeners are in any of those places and Don't want to link kill up. Us. Do not uh, kill find us and kill us if uh, you are a fascist out there in Mexico. Yeah, but if you are, I don't know, a Zapatista comrade and you want to hang out with us and talk about the international left, uh, hit us up and we would be more than happy to do so. Or if you have any interesting connections uh, to folks down there or comrades that we should meet, uh, do feel free, please, to reach out at uh, mindset at gmail.com. We definitely would love to meet some cool people down in Mexico. That's it. Dead ass. All right. Shall we? I guess uh, I'd like to preface this discussion of Greece and the financial crisis by saying right off the bat, I am a layperson, economist, 
I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> Economics are not my area of expertise. Um, uh, if I could just cut in real quick, it comes from the Greek, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, oikos, which is the word for uh, household. Economics does. And uh, if you go across the... I'm just kidding. I'm not actually going to go into that. <laughs> thanks, thanks, babe. Uh, you can mansplain that to me uh, later after uh, we're done uh, Oh, I sure will. Um, so I am a lay person. And I think like many lay persons out there, I've always had the idea that economics are just really complicated and they're really hard and I could never understand it. Um, and now since I started preparing for this episode and reading some of Pavlos's stuff, um, I started to realize this stuff is actually not that complicated. Bourgeois economists want you to think that it is so that you don't try to understand it. But once you actually start digging into it, you realize just how much of it has been fabricated from whole cloth to justify some highly exploitative political formations, uh, not to mention a really nonsensical, inherently unstable, unstable system, and the degree to which you, the average person, is really getting screwed. But it's not actually that complicated. Anybody can and should understand it so that you can point out, hey, the emperor has no clothes. This is bullshit. Um, that said, I will also let you know if there's anything in this conversation that I don't understand, because uh, if I don't understand it, chances are most people won't. All right. Jamie is our layperson. That's good. I like that. Uh, we're also going to have some uh, audio riot porn later. So if you get bored, uh, we're going to spice things up a little bit. Spice network style. In case you might uh, not have heard, uh, folks in Greece, anarchists and communists and People like our guest uh, have been known to throw down once or twice. Uh, the, you know, there's a sort of, I don't know, how would you say, like a, um, an aversion in the United States to throwing Molotov cocktails at police officers. They don't really have the same customs. It's a cultural thing. It's like a cultural difference. Uh, we, we're not pegging it down any racial thing. You know, or it's just it's kind of a tradition, would you say, Pavlos, right? In Greece. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's been for a long time. It's part of the it's part of the history of Greece of the last at least 40, 50 years because um, the fall of the dictatorship, which was welcomed by everyone in Greece in 1974, um, coincided with a big uprising um, that happened shortly before that was crushed by the military. A lot of people dead. And uh, the whole narrative of the post-dictatorship Greece was built upon this heroic uprising of students. In many cases, they tried to call it peaceful. That was not the case um, at all. That's why the, the army was called in. The cops could not handle the situation. Um, but that's what happened at the end of the day. A lot of people um, build their, their political careers. A lot of people from the left and the social democratic left built on, on, on glorifying that moment of rebellion. And that created an atmosphere in Greece where... Um, you know, a lot of people are quite sympathetic when they see people going down the streets and, and fighting for what they're doing. Okay, so yeah, we're going to build towards uh, some stories from these very sexy riots. Uh, but first, we ha we'll start um, with a little bit of, of that history. So uh, in your book, you say that Greece, uh, with its post-war fascist government and late-coming Keynesian reforms of the, of the 2000s, tends to be about 15 years behind the times. Uh, but also, I think some people could read Greece as being somewhat ahead of the times with um, with what happened uh, during the crisis in 2008, 2009, uh, and the riots. Uh, at the same time, uh, I believe there was a, a phrase that we are an image of the future, like these riots in Greece are going to generalize. Um, and you could argue that some of that unrest did generalize over the next few years. So I, I guess my question very generally is, um, why is Greece consistently such a unique point of reference, whether it's in the future or the past? It seems to be uh, kind of 
you know, uniquely ahead or, or uh, behind in mm. this uh, emblematic way. Mm. Well, just to clarify, when I say that Greece was behind, I mean it in very strict mainstream terms, right? In terms of like what was the official mainstream economic policy in the post-war period, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and so on. And, and Greece was consistently, and when I say Greece, I mean the Greek economy, Greek politicians. I would not refer to Greek people as Greece. Um, but these people were trying to catch up to what was happening in the rest of the world. And in that sense, they were behind. I don't mean it in any other way. The people who, who, who coined this idea were an image of the future were coming from a different perspective, of course, and they were talking from the perspective of the people who are struggling against all of that. Um, and in a certain way, I think that the background of that, um, of that phrase and the reason it remains so popular is because precisely Greece, it, 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 I think it was coined in, during the 2008 rebellion in December 2008 after the assassination of uh, Alexis Grigoropoulos, the 15-year-old. And at the time, everybody was um, turning their attention towards Greece and thinking of that expression, that rebellion as an expression of, of a, um, a reaction to the crisis. But there was no crisis in Greece at that moment, right? So in that sense, I think that was what, what made it like an image of the future because it kind of foretold something that was going to happen in the rest of the world without itself being the result, the immediate result of a crisis. Pavlos, you alluded to this uh, a little earlier when you mentioned the dictatorship. Um, for the folks out there who don't know, um, you know, certainly not in the UK or the United States where we may have had some role perhaps in uh, the post-World War II period. Uh, can you kind of bring us, um, just describe like the social and the geopolit geopolitical forces uh, that come out of the Second World War leading into this regime of uh, the generals and the dictatorship and, the, and what comes directly after that? Right. So um, just very Briefly, in the Second World War, Greece was occupied by the Nazis and the Italian fascists and the part in the north by the Bulgarians. And in that time, um, the majority of the bourgeois uh, forces and, and politicians and whatever, they left Greece, right? They, were, they, they formed this government in exile. So the only people that were left in Greece fighting the Nazis were left wing. So they created this vast um, military apparatus called ELAS, the, the military wing of the political party of EAM. And um, they, they were basically the only guerrilla, the only significant guerrilla force against the Nazis. And they did a lot of law, interesting things. And they had um, mass support in the population. Um, they were, of course, at the same time Stalinist. They were pro-Soviet. But this is a different question. At the time, um, they were the only force against the Nazis. When the war ended, however, um, there was a split and there was a decision made in Yalta between Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt that we're going to separate the world in, in the following way. And Greece ended up on the Western side instead of um, joining the, the, the Soviet side, although the majority of the people who fought were in the no. Soviet side, sorry. No, just real quick for folks who don't know, there's something called the Percentages Agreement. Look it up online. It's literally Churchill. I think it was Churchill, Stalin. I think FDR had signed off on it. They wrote out the percentage of influence that the two blocs would have in the post-war period on a fucking napkin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Greece is significant in this regard because uh, the Civil War was so something of a defiance of this, of this dividing line. And... It, the brutality with which it was repressed uh, sort of sent a message to the communist parties and socialist parties in the rest of Europe um, that you have to disarm and go the parliamentary route or else this is what's going to happen to you. So after, after Greece, uh, the PCI in Italy and the PCF in France um, are largely, they, they, 
that sends them on the trajectory of Eurocommunism and mm. towards liberalism and, and towards collapsing as, a, as true communist parties altogether. Mm. So Greece is really uh, you know, at the forefront of that. So, so go on with the... Uh... Well, yeah, in a sense. But at the same time, you have to add something else to the story that um, in, in Italy and in France and all these countries, there was a massive stimulus coming from the United States, the Marshall Plan, that actually helped the economy bounce. And there was a kind of class compromise. So the idea was, okay, the, the working class will remain quiet and not com- non-combative in exchange for better wages, full employment, mm-hmm. and all these strategies. That did not take place in Greece. In Greece, the, the ruling um, parties and the, and the right-wing authoritarian governments that were installed were not particularly interested in developing the economy. Their main obsession was avoiding the communist danger, right? So the only thing that did, like determined Greek politics in the ni- post-war period was the Cold War. It was not Marshall Plan, it was not Keynesian politics policies or anything like that. So what we had is like very strong authoritarian right-wing governments that effectively marginalized half of the population, the population that had supported the left wing or had been seen as sympathetic to the left wing or they just, you know, your, your cousin was part of the resistance, so that meant that you were also guilty of something. And then a lot of people were taken to prison, exiled, there were executions, of course. But most importantly, in a certain way, um, a lot of people were marginalized in terms of employment opportunities. So you could not get a job if you had been part of that or were suspected to be part of that. So there was basically hardly any economic development happening in Greece in the first decade. And uh, that led a lot of people to leave Greece and migrate to other countries, something that was supported by the government, right? And uh, we'd like to thank you for all the wonderful Greek diners in uh, New Jersey and uh, <laughs> New York and uh, the tri-state area. Thank you so much for that. We appreciate that, uh, Axel. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because when you say they did not focus on economic development, they focused on countering communism. Like, in the minds of most people, economic development is the opposite of communism, mm. right? Like, uh, people don't really realize that... Um, I don't know, certain like, I don't know if you want to call them fascist or authoritarian state formations are not actually as good or quote unquote good, whatever you want to call it, at economic development as like a more neoliberal formation. So that's just it's kind of interesting to think about. Mm. I mean, to be honest, of, of course, there have been cases where in the stricted sense of growth or economic development that you have had fascist governments doing a pretty good job. But um but, but in Greece, the, the, there, were, there were different problems um, at the same time, like simultaneous problems. And, and there was a lot of this um, a kind of lack of respect or, or trust in the, in the currency. People prefer to, to store their um, wealth or whatever they had in gold or in, in British pounds because they did not trust the government would be stable enough. Um, there was a lot of... Um, yeah, there was a lot of migration, as I said, and there was a lot of dependence on very small family units, right, that uh, subsidized whatever uh, low wages existed in any, in any sector. So a lot of people survived. And, and what the government kind of knew at the time was that if they brought economic development, that would increase the amount of demands that people had about a better life. And if they were more dependent on their wages instead of the family kind of small allotment and, and the little kind of garden and whatever means of subsistence they had, so they knew that if people depended more on wages, then they would demand more. And they tried to avoid that either by directly repressing any kind of social antagonism or by supporting the, the migration of people towards other countries, mostly Belgium and Germany, in fact. 
That's very interesting. So there's a, a way in which social reproduction is kind of taken off the back of the state uh, during that period. So let's get ourselves out of the regime of the generals, as it's called, and this repression. Uh, in the 1970s, there was an uprising, as you would mentioned earlier, and a, a new social formation and political political formation uh, arises. Um, it's really difficult because there's no analog to this in the United States or a lot of other countries, right? There's this uh, political party called PASOK that arises. And you make the argument, and I've heard other ma- others make it too, that uh, in this period uh, after the dictatorship, it's not just that PASOK was the dominant party, but there's almost like a PASOKization of the entire state apparatus. So, you know, what is PASOK and what's its relation to, you know, popular forces in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and up until, you know, a few years ago? Yeah. Well, with, with the collapse of the dictatorship, uh, there was another round of, of, of social antagonism. And what, what, what became clear at that point and what had already become clear in the 70s before the dictatorship was that there was a complete lack of any left-wing mediation in, when, when workers went on struggles. So there were no political parties because most of them were illegal. There were no trade unions with any kind of experience like that. So whenever the workers went on strike, it was a wildcard strike and there was no way to contain its, its, its dynamic, right? So they realized that at some point, they realized, I'm speaking as if they're a subject, they're not, but mm-hmm. there was the realization, let's say, at some point that um, there is this need for mediation that directs um, workers' demands towards more acceptable paths. And PASO came to represent exactly that. Um, it was towards the late 70s. No, it was, it was formed in 1974, but it managed to get in power in 1981. And what they did was, was extremely significant for Greek history because for the first time after the war, the, the population, half of the population that was marginalized until then became legalized in some way. So they were... Um, they were, they were permitted into like public sector jobs en masse. PASOK made sure that they hired a lot of people who would support them. And there was a lot of um, formal equality, like gender equality, divorce was, um, was legalized. There was a lot of changes like that that meant progressive changes in, 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 in any possible way and that, that, that gave them a lot of support. And they made... And they also adopted, as we probably mentioned before, uh, they adopted a Keynesian form of um, economic policies, which meant fiscal expansion, like giving out a lot of money, not being concerned about inflation, not being concerned about all these things um, that usually keep money so tight and, and people poor. So they, they opened up um, the, they opened up Greek society, culturally, politically, and economically. And, and that meant that a lot of people supported them. Even 20, 30, 40 years later, um, when things were, of course, not like that at all. But the memory of that, the nostalgia of that early Basok um, remains until, th- until today. So the next big um, historical event that w- is crucial to your book and just this story in general is um, this transition from this late Keynesianism into this uh, what they call neoliberal or you call monetarist uh, new mode you know, that comes also out of PASOK. I would like to add a little thing about the early PASOK because I don't yeah, want sure. to give people the wrong impression about social democracy because there were mm. like negative things happening at the same time. Mm. In order for PASOK to consolidate its power, it also made sure that it facilitated the road for private capital development. It tried to, to create a situation where investments were, um, were going to be increased and that meant that it treated a lot of workers' demands as irrational. That was actually the term that was used, workers' demands are irrational, because at the moment they're going against our national development. There was this idea that any kind of social antagonism was fueled by right-wing propaganda and Mm. extremism. So everything that happened at the time was seen as something that was um, a a deliberate obstacle to the national socialist 
that sounded as pretty <laughs> <laughs> but it's true it was called like that um, it was a socialist government and they, they talked about national development they outlawed public strikes if you were in the public sector you could not go on strike right um, so there was there was that side as well in in, in, mm. in in Pasok's history that happened the first four years but because things were getting better in many ways people kind of chose to ignore all that that really seems to track with an argument that I often hear on the sort of liberal or social democratic left and among, I don't know, maybe some of the listeners of the majority report or just people who like to tweet at me when they're annoyed at the left, which is that uh, you need capitalism and capitalist development and growth in order to generate the wealth. And you need some like socialistic policies to redistribute it. And if you don't have a private sector, then there won't be anything to redistribute to help the uh, lower classes or whatever. Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a typical argument. But I think what it betrays is the, the extreme poverty of political economy, the way it's understood today. The idea that you can, you can either move from more government um, intervention in the economy to less government intervention. And that is the framework. There's nothing outside of that. So either you spend more or you spend less, either profit. Private capital is like supported or it's, it's kind of taxed. This is the, 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 the kind of framework. And that is so limited, right? Because in both those cases, the people who are actually involved with produ producing this world have not much to gain. Yeah, so your, your book takes on a lot of these orthodoxies uh, that we hear not only from the right, but also from uh, the Varoufakis types. Um, and I think the, the central uh, historical narrative that you try to debunk is the idea of, of Greece's unique uh, liability in the debt crisis of 2008. Um, so again, to our listeners, don't worry, the riot porn is coming. Uh, but, but first, you know, since um, we can't show you these great bar graphs, we're gonna have some, like we're gonna have some audio riot porn later, now we're gonna have some audio bar graphs. Um, <laughs> it's gonna be riveting, riveting. Yeah. So yeah, t the 2008, we get the crisis of the United States. Yes. Yep. And that really starts to cause, uh, I think the first, national crisis in Greece, and that's the sovereign debt crisis, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you call this in your book the greatest bait-and-switch in history, uh, which arguably led to the political crisis in the Eurozone that's still unfolding. So if you could nutshell this for our listeners without the use of graphs. Mm -hmm. Alternately, we could just describe the graphs one by one in really right. excruciating details, but I don't think we need to do that. <laughs> yeah. So what happens in the 90s in Europe is uh, that there's a decision made to create a European Monetary Union, like a common currency and connect all these countries, different countries, through free trade, open the borders and create this like that. Um, there were, of course, very strong economies in Europe, like Germany, France, Italy, and then there were the very weak ones. Um, all of them were asked to join, and the process of joining w meant that they start converging a number of, of economic indicators. Let's say it's like very boringly. So lower interest rates, which means borrowing costs become very low. And there's a kind of process through which all these different countries, despite different economies, economic outputs, economic capacity, and they get joined together into this one project. What that created in the, in the so-called Euro golden years before the crisis, that is, um, was a situation where Greece, Portugal, um, Spain, Ireland, all these peripheral countries, peripheral in the sense that they were not as strong economies, 
and uh, export economies or industrial economies, they could take advantage of this really low borrowing costs, and that created a huge credit expansion. So a lot of people who did not have money because wages were kind of falling down, they were becoming stagnant, there was a recession happening, but there, there was this so-called, inverted commas, wealth effect. So a lot of people who did not have access to goods and commodities and services because of their wages suddenly got access to all of that. Um, and that was through borrowing, through loans. And of course, this was used in different ways in different countries. Like there was a housing bubble in Spain and Ireland. In fact, the one in Ireland was much bigger than the United States and the one in Spain in proportion to their economies. And they created that housing bubble by making uh, mortgages more available to people, right? Through the extension of credit. And the decrease in, uh, you know, interest rates, uh, base interest rates. Yes, exactly. They, they, they made loans like banks were very uh, prolific in giving out loans to people um, neglecting um, the usual kind of premium risks that you would have uh, when you want to get a loan. It's the exact same situation as what happened in the United States. That happened in, in many, yeah. 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 And many cases like that. I think it was a bit more extreme in some cases in the US, but in any case, the, the, the method is the same. So a lot of people, and it wasn't just about housing, right? This, this credit expansion happened in different sectors. In Greece, it was more about construction, um, mass media, a lot of free press outlets came out at that time. In any case, a lot of people... Um, were drawn into this, um, into this form of growth, let's say, form of accumulation, uh, which at the, si at the time, we have to, to be clear about that, was considered the best possible form of growth, of economic growth by everyone, right? It wasn't just Greece. Everyone was involved in it. The US, Europe, everyone thought, okay, profitability is low, manufacturing is not producing that much, so what, how can we get out of this crisis of profitability? And then, for some reason, they believe for many years that the credit expansion is the way out of that, right? Man, reading your paper on that, it just struck, it struck me as being so short-sighted mm. on the part of capital and its state managers or servicers or whatever you want to call them, right? Because it seems obvious, I mean, maybe I'm just a dummy, but it seems pretty obvious to me that credit, if you're making money off of credit that is fictitious... Like, there's no guarantee that they're going to pay it back. That's a fictitious claim on future capital. And it's really fucked up because it's a win-win for the banks, yeah. right? Because if the people pay the loans back with interest, then the creditors make money. If the people default on a massive scale and can't pay them back, then the government bails them out because they have the entire government by the balls because that's what capital is. You know, you can't chop off just one part of it. Like... It circulates through everything and everywhere, so they don't really have a choice. And it, just like the utter uh, antisocial, amoral aspects of the system really pop out at you when you consider the fact that it's a win-win for creditors. And at best, like for regular working people, they'll be like kind of okay, or they'll just be ground under the gears of the system. Well, I mean, yes, they... they if, if, you, if you go back to those years, what you realize is that um, they actually, it was short-sighted in, in a way, but at the same time, capitalists um, and, and those who try to manage capitalism are always concerned about overcoming the, the, the fear of crisis, right? There's business cycles that come back and forth and, and this idea. And they're always trying to find ways to go beyond that. 
And at that time, they really believed that they had found a way that would that would be beyond crisis. So if if you sh- if there's stability, if there's constant growth, then it doesn't matter that you, you give out loans because growth means more money. There's more circulation. It means that people can actually pay it back. They can roll over their debts. And that they had the impression that that could go on for a much much longer time than it did. So in that sense, that was um, the, their main problem. At the same time. The intervention of the state when the crisis came in 2007 and 8 was not expected. It was not expected in the sense that um, it was considered a given that if all these things fail, the state is going to come in and save them. At this time, I think they were really concerned, and that's why everyone was panicking in 2007 and 8. Mm-hmm. That's why you had Bernanke going into the, the, the council and saying that if, if we don't do something now, there won't be a global economy mm-hmm. on Monday. I mean, this yeah, is the, the kind the of panic. going down, down right? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, Obama did a lot to assuage their concerns when he said he was on their side and he was going to guard them from the pitchforks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, of course, they're going to do whatever um, they can to save the global economy. They depend on it. But it wasn't clear at the time what exactly they could do and to what extent they, they could actually stop that panic, right? And that's, that's what created even more panic, right? So it was a bit, un- it was a bit unclear. It wasn't very um, obvious from the beginning. And I, I want to kind of uh, reiterate and, and put a pin in something that you said earlier. And Jamie, you mentioned two capital you know, flowing around to different areas. Um, you don't need a to create an asset bubble uh, through massive credit injection. If you have um, rates of profit on, say, uh, manufacturing capital, uh, or if you have uh, sufficient rates of profit in any other sector of the capitalist economy, uh, that would provide a return on real investment, you know, in the actual in means of production and, and commodities and this, that, and the other thing. So already, it almost seems like when we talk about it that like, oh, it was like this kind of like scheme, this like this trick to make this bubble so that we all make money and then cool, we got mm. bailed out. But I think that whole period that we're talking about here shows that there was already fundamentally a crisis of profitability in the global economy that had been endemic for a while. And the housing bubble is more a reflection of capital going to the a next logical place to go. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that fair to say, Pablo? Yes. Yes. I mean, the um, already from the from the crisis of the 70s, the so-called stag- stagflation period and the recession that was happening, um, that was an indication that the things were not going well at, at the level of profits. And uh, what what most people call neoliberalism, which is probably historically inaccurate, but let's keep the term for the moment, is basically an attempt from, from capital and those who manage it to reverse that trend of like low profitability. But the way they did that was basically to attack working class entrenchment, working class um, interest, um, to make it much easier to fire people, precarious jobs, get everyone completely fucked, as if that would restore profitability. It did not, right? It did, it did help in, in terms of like um, crushing any kind of working class um, power, right? Uh, unions, strikes, any, anything like that. But at the same time, it took a while for them to realize that profitability is actually, you know, that is not enough. You, you know, just getting people um, to, to, to give up on their, on their ability to struggle for themselves doesn't necessarily translate into bigger profits, right? It's just one side of the story. And the other side of the story was, was not there. So that's why they, they turned towards like different, um, different sectors where they could get like higher returns, as you said. What, what happened instead was a situation where you had like a massive explosion of antagonism with thousands and thousands of people taking the streets, creating assemblies, um, trying to reorganize their lives and trying to 
basically stop austerity at its roots, right? Right, right where it was happening. So on the one hand, you had this like massive explosion um, that happened around the squares movement, which was outside parliament. But when that was defeated, and I can explain why, um, but when that was defeated, that was broken down into smaller local um, neighborhood assemblies and self-activity of like many uh, working class and proletarian people who tried to stop austerity exactly where it was happening instead of treating it as a political event that you can you know block by blocking parliament mutual aid uh on a mass scale but locally based yeah exactly for example i'll give you an example that that kind of indicates that one of the measures that was passed in greece in terms of austerity was uh, property tax and in greece you have 85 percent of people own their own house right so property tax affects everyone very massively and very immediately they put that property tax um they connected it to the electricity bill so if you did not pay that property tax, they would cut off your electricity, Fucking right? Hell. And that was the situation. So what people did to stop that was um, uh, work together with electricians, create local groups and assemblies, and, and go to the houses where the electricity had been cut off and illegally reconnect it, right? So that was, that was a, a strategy that, that hit austerity at the root, right? There was nothing they could do about that, right? Because they, they used that, that, that form of, of, of repression, you know, in, in a specific way. But then when you go back and, and reconnect electricity, what can they do? And you still don't pay your tax, right? So these were the kind of things that were happening at the time in Greece. And they had nothing to do uh, with electoral politics, with, par- with parliament. It was, it was, in fact, it was a movement away from the center political stage, as it has been um, understood, into more local um, activities. So I, I noted from uh, your work that there was something like 20 general strikes uh, that happened in Greece when you're talking about this period of mass you know, social activity and uh, strikes and wildcat strikes and mass protests. For the folks in the United States, uh, we haven't had a general strike since uh, uh, 1946. So to imagine 20 of them, even if they were one or two day symbolic strikes, I think really does show this high level of mobilization and mass activity. Just to make sure, in Greece, there had always historically been a lot of general strikes. What was different in that period was that the, a lot of the general strikes that were happening were called by the, the assemblies in the squares, right? They were not called by the trade unions, or at least officially they were called by the trade unions, but it was under pressure from the thousands of people that were mobilizing. And they decided in the squares that we need a general strike, and then the, the unions were forced to follow, um, although they had no intention of, of calling for general strikes. Now, um, that specific incident with the one million people, I think that was the, the, the biggest participation ever. Um, the previous strikes had like 250,000, 300,000, again, huge numbers of people. But the one million was just went beyond um, any kind of expectation. And what happened then um, was an absolute, this, this is the riot porn you're looking for. Because what you had is like 12 hours of intense, hardcore riots in the center of Athens, but the wider center of Athens, not, not confined to one street. In all possible paths leading towards the parliament, there was just like thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And the cops just could not do anything okay, so about it. So this is winter 2011? 12. 2012. It's February. It's following when they they pass this major austerity package, right? It's the second. It's the days that they're voting the second memorandum of agreement in Greece, mm-hmm. and the second round of austerity, and uh, there's a, gen- a two day general strike hold, and on the third day, which is a Sunday, there is a big demonstration right right after the general strike, and then yeah, a million people come to the streets, and it's it's just a wonderful festival of um, of rioting and and looting and people people like literally opened up like six or seven ATMs 
right? You can imagine how much time you need with a crowbar to open an ATM. It takes like forever. And there were like six or seven opened up and people were handing out the, the money to whoever was coming through. You know, it was just a sharing and they were looting shops and they were giving out the clothes to whoever needed it. They were trying them out in the barricades and, and that was the kind of atmosphere, right? And the cops could only like keep a distance and throw tear gas and just gradually try to like evacuate like, you know, the, the people from, from parliament towards like, you know, to kick them out and send them home. But it took them 14 hours or 15 hours to actually clean, clear the streets. Wow. And, and just to be clear, the austerity was being administered by uh, the Greek government as a way to uh, deal with this debt crisis, correct? And sort of make the uh, European Central Bank whole again, right? Yes, I mean, we, we've kind of jumped a bit um, yeah. here. so uh, I, I, I just want to make sure that we go in order a little yes, bit because yeah, it, no, it could right. be confusing. Yeah, right. It is a little so, confusing. Yeah, so let's just go back a bit and make yeah. it very yeah. short. Um, so basically, in 2010, there is an official admission that the Greek economy is in shambles and something has to be done. And what they decide to do is get... Uh, the Europeans and the IMF to come give out some loans to Greece because the, the situation is very difficult. And in exchange for these loans, which Greece, the Greek government will take in order to repay the loans that they cannot pay anymore, uh, there will be a number of conditionalities, which means austerity. So in order to get money, in order not to go uh, bankrupt or to default as a country, they uh, would have to impose all these reforms, this restructuring of the economy. So that happens in 2010, in April. There's an official announcement. In the beginning, people are kind of shocked because especially the IMF, nobody expects the IMF to be involved, right? Everyone is used to the IMF being involved in countries that are underdeveloped. There's this idea, slightly racist in a way, but there is this idea that this goes towards underdeveloped countries. And then People are shocked. There is some reaction. There's some demonstrations. There's a few general strikes called then. People go to the streets. There's some violence, but it's quite confined. It's not that big. And then what happens, unfortunately, is like in the last day um, when there's a general strike in, on May the 5th of 2010, there is a huge riot. And it's at some moment, um, people are going walking past the bank and they throw Molotov cocktails inside the bank, as, as you do in Greece, right? And then... Unfortunately, there were, there were people working inside the bank and there was no fire exit. Mm. So basically, these people were trapped inside and four of them died. Right? So, it's so absolutely this, horrible. In this period between 2008 and 2012, there's this combination of general strikes, riots, and the, the square occupation movement. And in the course of it, there becomes this splitting up of good and bad protesters. And uh, I, this, this, I think you talk about in your book, and how that splitting up ends up corresponding with different narratives of understanding the crisis and the narrative that ends up becoming the basis for Syriza's victory is this sort of national aggrievement. That seems to be where the uh, more insurrectionary aspects of what was going on in Greece stagnated. Well, I mean, the, the, the propaganda against anyone who was um, antagonistic, violent against the police in demos is very old. It's an, it wasn't a new thing. The separation of between the good protesters and the bad protesters is quite old. But the reality of the situation is that in, in, in moments of like very intense social antagonism, those barriers are broken down because a lot of people participate in that as out of direct necessity, right? If you go to demonstrate for something that you believe is right, and they were right in demonstrating, and then suddenly you get all these cops attacking you for no reason, um, suffocating you with tear gas and just beating up whoever comes in their way, then people tend to react to that in Greece. And, and, and as I said before, there is a kind of social acceptance of that reaction. So there was a lot of people who were um, involved in those um, expressions of violence, um, and that number was, was growing in time. 
Um, there was a there was a very um, specific attempt by the left to to how do you call it to 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 call these people provocateurs. This is a very traditional thing in the left in Greece. They do not like anything that goes outside of their control. So they tend to talk about these people as if they are working for the police or or, or being involved in in, in trying to. Um, kind of create barriers and, and, and separate people in the movement. Da, da, da. That's never happened to any of us in this room. So, yeah, mm -hmm. that's just a Greek thing, I guess. Yeah, it's just a Greek thing. So Syriza emerged uh, in the aftermath of this crisis, right? Um, and you write in your paper uh, that Syriza was, from the beginning, indifferent to the radical aspects of the movements and was more concerned with renewing the process of legitimization of accepted political procedures and a return to parliamentarianism. Uh, you counterpose this process to the taking of public space and its use for creating common life, shared ideals, purposeful collective coexistence, and struggle. So what does, what did, and what does Syriza stand for? Um, what does it represent? And what was its relationship to the social movements that arose within this crisis? Um, and why was so much of the global left sort of hanging their hopes on it? Hmm. Well, um, as I said before, the, the some of the most radical aspects of the movement, and I call them radical not in terms of a, some kind of identity, but in terms of like the actual possibility of stopping austerity, right? Were these moments where people got together and organized themselves in order to yeah, stop austerity at its roots, reconnecting electricity, creating free clinics for those who were outside of the collapsed health system, and all these um, forms of mutual aid. Now, Citizen and its, its, its uh, dynamic was not concerned with supporting those elements. What they were concerned was a way of channeling all that mobilization towards parliamentary support. So what had happened in Greece for, for, for those years was a complete process of delegitimization of accepted political practice. So political parties were not accepted in the squares and at all. They were all kicked out. Mass media were not accepted. Trade unions were seen as complicit in austerity. All those mediations that keep like society like coherent were broken down, right? And um, what Syriza was trying to do from the beginning, because that is their background, that is what they're meant to do, is draw all that mobilization, all that dynamic back towards accepted parliamentary politics. That's what they were trying to do. They were never concerned with giving any kind of strength or supporting those moments that actually had a chance of stopping austerity. So with that as the backdrop, um, I would just like to lay out for people uh, the basics of what happened with Syriza, how they won a round of elections, um, the referendum on leaving the Eurozone and what uh, Syriza ultimately did after that. It wasn't actually, uh, uh, Pavlos will get to this, but it wasn't a referendum on leaving the Eurozone. It was a referendum on the memorandum of agreement done under Syriza. Right. But yes, in a certain way, that. that's exactly how it was framed. So you're not wrong in assuming that that was the, the content. But let's, let's take a small step back. So in 2015, like three years after the social movements have ended in Greece, um, Syriza gets elected. They got elected because they took advantage of, this, of, the, of, a, of a sense of defeat, of a sense of exhaustion, of a sense of depression. Um, people were no longer, um, they did not feel that they could stop austerity. After all this time, people had tried a lot of different things, strategies, mobilized, bled, and they had like all these um, struggles, and then they hadn't achieved a lot. So they felt very desperate. In that moment, Syriza came and said, okay, there's this last chance. You could elect a party in government that is actually promising to end austerity. I would say most people did not believe that. But they did think that maybe if there is any chance to stop even a little bit, 
Like one of the common things you would hear at the time in Greece was that even if Syriza um, fulfills one tenth of its promises, even that is enough. So that was the kind of attitude. It wasn't some kind of like immense enthusiasm that something great is going to happen, but it was some kind of last chance. Okay, we've we've done anything else. We're kind of lost. We're kind of desperate. So let's give that a chance without being having any illusions about it. So they managed to get elected, and then what what starts is a process where Syriza is trying to negotiate. Um, with uh, Europeans and the IMF, and this is a period of six months. Yanis Varoufakis is in charge. I have a, quite a lot of respect for Yanis Varoufakis as an economist and as a thinker. Um, we have, of course, a lot of disagreements, but in that sense, he was much more consistent and decent because what he tried to do was consistent with what he'd been talking about for many years before, and he got in government. For some reason, Syriza gave him a chance to negotiate, and he got there and tried to do that. If you read his book, for example, where he de- describes all the situation, you can see that from the very beginning, if not the first week after he got elected, it's pretty clear that this strategy of using parliamentary means of like trying to stop austerity is not going to work, right? In any case, they drag it on for six months, right? And that creates a situation of uncertainty, of instability. And at the end of that period, Tsipras decides, the prime minister, decides to hold a referendum because, and this is crucial, he was convinced that he would lose it, right? So the referendum was framed in such a way as to make it sound as if, if you vote no, that means we leave the Eurozone. And Tsipras knew that the majority of the people in Greece thought that leaving the Eurozone would have been a, a fate even worse than being in the Eurozone, right? So he, he placed his bets on the fact that, okay, we're going to have this referendum, people are going to vote yes to remain in the Eurozone and accept this austerity, so then he could implement all this um, restructuring without being the one to blame, right? So that was what they were thinking about. They were, they were thinking of like justifying their capitulation by holding a referendum. What they did not expect is that when you give the people the option between do you want to get fucked or do you not want to get fucked, they're probably going to go for the second part, right? And a lot of people felt, okay, it's just a vote. It's a referendum. You're, you're projecting your power to someone else to take care of it. It's not something that you do yourselves. It's not your self-activity that puts you on the line and, and involves some kind of risk. You're telling someone else that they have the opportunity to take your expression and use it in the way that they want. And that is what happened eventually. I mean, Tsipras, the, the no vote against the, the, the further restructuring of the economy won uh, 61% of the vote and then Tsipras and his government acted as if they had lost, um, as if the yes had won. And um, immediately after that, to his credit, Varoufakis resigned, and then the continuation is just a continuation of austerity ever since. This has been the, um, the summary of it. How did they justify going against the will of the Greek people with this? Because from the outside, it really seems like authoritarianism to do that, right? Well, Am the- I missing something? It, it really depends on how you interpret it. I mean, it's electoral politics, right? So if a government, any government, is elected on a ticket and then they do not fulfill that, is that authoritarianism? In a certain way, you could say it is. In a certain way, that is the history of parliamentary democracy. So in a certain... I mean, what, what, what they, they, they justified by saying that we are in a corner, we don't have a chance to do anything else. And this is the way they have justified things ever since. But this is also the way any other government before Syriza justified their own uh, imposition of austerity. So it has become a bit of a lame excuse, um, but this is the way they justified it. That we tried, we did our best, but you know we're cornered, there's not much, there's, n- there's no other option. 
so we have to uh, comply. Well, they hadn't printed billions of drachmas and put them in a basement somewhere getting ready, right? (laughs) Like, they could have done it differently, right? Like, I mean, we talk a lot about whether things are just totally overdetermined by the market, and Mm. as long as we have capitalism, uh, individual politicians do not have that much power within the system, right? Because if you take down just to use an example, the banks that are too big to fail, um, you take down a significant portion of your economy, throwing everything into crisis. So I guess is I want to know, was there something else that they could have done uh, that would have produced a better result for the people of Greece or were their hands pretty much tied? Well, history is, a, is an open space, right? So there is no um, predetermined outcome in anything. But the, the question is, to what extent do we remain within a specific framework, right? So if you accept the framework, then the outcomes are going to be within that framework, right? So in that sense, I would say, no, they couldn't have done anything differently because the way that they thought that you could get out of austerity was by convincing the technocrats of the Eurozone and the IMF that they actually know better math. Than, right. the, than them, right? That was the kind of idea. So you go to the Eurogroup meetings, this was where there was decided, um, the different forms of austerity, and then you just convince them, and this is one of the, the problems with Varoufax as well, he was com- absolutely convinced that if he just went there and explained to them the fallacy of their ways, you know, they would just understand, wake up and say, oh, that was just a bad dream, right? It was just like all wrong. N- now let's go back into growth. Um, that was not the case. So with that in mind, of course, of course you're going to fail, right? Because that, that is not the reason they imposed austerity. It wasn't because they were wrong. It wasn't because yeah. they had wrong mathematical models, right? And it seems like Giannis Varoufakis has really doubled down on that strategy, right? Because isn't his whole thing like reforming the European Union in a way that's more, I don't know, social democratic, humane towards workers and uh, internationalist? Yes, yes. I mean... He he also shared that belief with Syriza, and that, that's probably the reason why they put him in his place, and uh, and he just like followed up on that, and that is you know again consistent, respectable, but at the same time wrong. And I think what was striking in your book was um, you point out that Greece is two uh, percent of the GDP of the entire eurozone, and that there was, as you point out, this narrative that was created not just in Greece but also elsewhere. We heard in the U.S. that. The Germans are just these greedy bullies who don't care about, you know, anybody else and that the Greeks are these poor uh, victimized people. Right. But the point of the austerity uh, wasn't, it seems, from your book, even to, I don't know, make good structural reforms to the Greek economy so that it could uh, flourish in the future. It was essentially because the banks in in Germany and to a lesser extent, France and elsewhere were deeply invested in Greece and they needed to be made whole. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes. That is exactly what happened in 2010. I mean, like, damn the, damn the Greek people, right? There, there's there's not that many of them, but our banks need to be made whole, so fuck them. And there's also the flip side to that narrative, right, which is blaming the Greek people for being lazy yeah, or right. wanting yeah. too much in the form of wages or public jobs or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that was exactly the narrative. Like, in order to justify the fact that French and German banks that were overexposed and they were like threatened, they, they, they were affected by the, the American crisis, right? And then it was kind of coming to the, to, to the Eurozone. And Greece was one place where they were particularly um, like exposed. So in order to, to create a situation where saving those banks was not seen as such, right? We're not just saving the banks. They created this narrative that... The problems faced by the Greek economy 
are the result of like overspending. You know, they, they spend like drunken sailors. They just go around and do whatever. They have like a huge a bloated public sector. They don't even know how many public employees they have. They're lazy. They're not productive. They're ineffective. They're yeah, useless. Their, their in budget all for uh, goats and sheep is just through the roof, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, Ozo, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they just go around and drink Ozo and, and, and chill out in cafes and that's all they do. Please help. My family is starving. Um, so they, they had to create Sorry. this idea, right, that it's their fault, right? It is something intrinsic in the Greek economy, in the Greek society, in the Greek culture, whatever, that is to blame for this economic disaster. Because that was the only way that they could say, okay, we're going to impose this huge austerity because it's your fault. And all of this has nothing to do with the 2007-2008 economic crisis, has nothing to do with the United States, has nothing to do with the problems in the Eurozone in general. It is all about lazy Greeks, right? And you, and you make a wonderful case with lots of statistics and uh, I have to say very excellent analysis that the entire Eurozone project was essentially sort of divided from the beginning from a north-south uh, you know sort of uh, framework and that it wasn't just the Greeks but we got the wonderful acronym out of this crisis of the pigs right <laughs> which is you know pretty provocative but it's mm -hmm. Portugal Ireland uh, Italy uh, Greece and Spain, right? So the, all these profligate Southern European countries where they take siestas and they're lazy and the, the Italians do too many hand gestures in order to work well <laughs> enough. I don't know what the, the story is, yeah, right? But, yeah. but it does sound like a very convenient sort of way to, to blame the victim. Yeah, but I mean, it, it was really funny and I'm not implying that the Greeks were lazy, but to compare Greece to other countries like Ireland or, or Italy is just completely insane. And they, they could not actually use the same um, the same narrative of, of laziness and stuff. It's more Then it became more technical. It was like um, unproductive, uh, non-competitive, you know, how you have this jargon to explain the things. And the other funny thing was that it, although it is, it is true that Greece had a very large uh, public debt in relation to its GDP, it was 120% in, in, in 2010, um, all the other countries that got involved in the Eurozone crisis afterwards, like Portugal, Spain, Ireland, did not have, they had like lower public debt than Germany, right? There was not an increase in public debt in those countries. They had private debt, right, which was a completely different thing. But the state expenditure had not gone like, through the roof at, as it was proclaimed. But what they did is they were forced, all these countries were forced to invest, like, they forced the state to spend loads and loads of money to save the banking sector that was completely overexposed and was clear to default. So that's what they did, and, and that's how they framed it. In the beginning, it was like the lazy Greeks. Then it became a bit of a wider problem, structural imbalances. Then it became very confusing because nobody knew what the narrative was anymore. But, but the, 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 you know, the job was done anyway. And then Syriza, of course, picks up on that, and it's this national humiliation and uh, humanitarian crisis as opposed to an actual, you know, class forces situation of uh, exploitation. And about that exuberance, um, I went to Jacobin Magazine and I plugged in um, Syriza, right, to kind of see this exuberance, this bubble, if you will, uh, about uh, Syriza as this new radical formation to watch that bubble burst. So I have an article here from 2015, which I believe it was uh, the inaugural address of uh, Cyprus, who was the Syriza prime minister. Uh, and it's laudatory, right? He makes this speech. And I'll just do a quick quote from this. 
Um, broadly speaking, Cyprus sent out a message of firmness and combativeness, both internally and externally. He has disproved those who are already waging on a slippery slope towards capitulation. It seems out of the question that the European leaders will tolerate in any shape or form the policies that he proposed to the Greek parliament. We are thus indeed in a situation of outright confrontation, which will take a decisive turn during the coming weeks with the conjunction of European summits and street demonstrations. We are indubitably on the eve of great events, events which may transform the current course of things in Greece and in Europe. With the combination of the determination of the Greek governmental leadership, the mobilization of the people, and international solidarity, the magic equation of victory is now at hand. <laughs> so there's, uh, our, so there's our Jacobin from uh, 2015. So let's go back to the same writer. Uh, I don't know, a few years later, real quick again. Um, this is talking about how uh, Cyprus now and uh, Syriza is actually um, arresting activists and uh, engaging in massive repression as they push this austerity regime forward uh, after, I guess, they did capitulate a bit, right? It says, uh, great damage has been done to democracy in Greece already, and things will probably, will probably become even harsher in months to come as elections approach. And the bank's problems likely come to center stage. The economic and social disaster caused by the capitulation of Cyprus has become clear to broad layers of the electorate, and the feelings of contempt are widespread. Given that this government has already sold its soul by compromising with the lenders, it will have no compunction in escalating repression against all those who actively oppose it. International solidarity is urgently needed to stop this turn of events. It's rapidly becoming a matter of defending democracy. So there you have it, right? The, uh, the Syriza story in uh, one U.S. socialist magazine as seen from abroad in, uh, in two beautiful articles three years apart. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about uh, what Syriza was and what it represented? Well, I mean, Syriza was, was created in the late 80s, early 90s. Until 2012, it was a political party that barely made it into, in, into parliament, right? In Greece, there's a threshold of 3%. If you don't get more than 3%, you're not in, government, in, in parliament. So most of the times they did, but a couple of times in that period, they did not too. So they were never a significant force um, of left-wing or social democratic politics in Greece anyway. Like, if I can explain in a more symbolic way, Syriza, within the, the context of, like, um, left or radical left uh, movements and milieus and scenes, was like, um, it's like you go to a party with all your friends, and then your cousin is visiting from out of town, and they come too, and they're kind of annoying, but you don't kick them out of the party. <laughs> so that's the kind of, that was what Syriza, you know, how Syriza related to, to, to what was happening in Greece. So they were there, but they were not significant, they did not determine things, but nobody actually was particularly hostile to them, because precisely they were a bit um, useless. That changed in, in 2012 or shortly before uh, because it was becoming clear that the, any, the, the existing political parties, the mainstream ones that have been governing Greece, mostly PASOK, but then also New Democracy, um, were complete failures in, in doing anything to stop austerity. They were actually the ones implementing it. So there was an opening up of the political spectrum and Syriza took advantage of that. But it is not the case that Syriza was very much involved um, or determinant in the actual movements that happen against austerity. And I'm talking about the period between 2010 and 2012. Again, as I said, they were there, but they were not significant in any possible way. I would just like to set forth one counterexample of somebody who, you know, I don't know if she's an anarchist or a communist, uh, maybe she's like a sterner, right, or whatever, um, who 
at least has claimed that she could use her electoral platform as a way to ultimately abolish the system and ran uh, very effectively on that platform. So if I may, I would like to play you a clip from the great uh, Tammy Metzler mm. and see uh, you know, wh what you think about that. This was that documentary, right? Yeah, it was a documentary called Election about the American political system. People! People! Who cares about this stupid election? <laughs> we all know it doesn't matter who gets elected president of Carver. Do you really think it's going to change anything around here? Make one single person smarter, or happier, or nicer? The only person it does matter to is the one who gets elected. The same pathetic charade happens every year. And everyone makes the same pathetic promises just so they can put it on their transcripts to get into college. So vote for me, because I don't even want to go to college. And I don't care. And as president, I won't do anything. <laughs> the only promise I will make is that if elected, I will immediately dismantle the student government <laughs> so that none of us will ever have to sit through one of these stupid assemblies again. <laughs> Those are some ultra-left students there in the audience. Oh, don't vote for me. Who cares? <laughs> don't vote at all. <laughs> <laughs> Have you never seen that before, Paula? No, but it's funny because you know that that's a similar situation is what kind of what triggered... Um, May 1968 in, in France, oh. right? Because there was like a, I think a few months before May 68, there was um, there were some people, some radicals who managed to get themselves elected in the student union of a university. Uh, in the periphery, um, right? Not even by Paris? Yeah, it was in Paris. It was yeah. a bit outside of Paris. And they managed to get themselves elected. And what they did is they took all the money of the student union, <laughs> abolished the student union, and, and made propaganda, right? <laughs> like a specific text written yeah. by the Situationist International yes. which explained why students are stupid <laughs> and, and deserve our yes. contempt. That is all they did. And then they abolished the student union. And then 30 so million... They, kind of, <laughs> they have some kind of idea, you know. Hell yeah. 30 million French uh, workers went on uh, general strike and yes, Charles de Gaulle after, uh, yeah. left the country. Yeah, uh, yeah. The power was in the streets. They just failed to pick it up. But yeah, that's a good analogy. I yeah, like that. Yeah. So maybe this movie is a lot more radical than we thought it was. Maybe... Uh, <laughs> I mean, people have really tried to... Uh, like a lot of left liberal feminists have rehabilitated the uh, main character in the movie as this sort of real striving Hillary Clinton type. Oh, Flick. Who, yeah, Tracy Flick, Flick yeah. who just like works really, really hard and wants to make the world better with her competent management and doesn't think it's fair that, you know, this like rich asshole who's running against her is going to get more votes than her just because he's popular. And she's like the working class feminist hero of this movie. Just but, like Hillary, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. But like from or Alexis I mean, she's, Cypress, she's yeah. more working class than Hillary. But yeah. But I mean, I think the real radical hero in this movie is clearly Tammy Metzler. And I think that's been really overlooked by liberals who want to talk about it. So, yeah, on the topic of American elections, um, do you see an analog for Syriza in the U.S.? And is it the movement around Bernie Sanders right now? Because, like, I mean, I see some parallels in that 
Um, it's a new party, right? He doesn't represent a new party, but he's somewhat independent from the Democratic Party, which is sort of a failed brand. Um, what do you think? Well, there are certainly parallels in terms of the method and the, and the general um, outlook of what politics is about, which is parliamentary, which is um, about giving up your power to someone else for them to make the choices. At the same time, I would have to say there is no parallel in terms of like we're talking about two different, completely different countries. Greece is not in the same position economically, politically, historically, in any possible way. It's not in the same position as the United States. Um, I have to say, as, as a visitor in this place, I find it absolutely appalling that there is no health care. That, that is something that in Europe you're not used to. So anyone who, who does something to improve that situation does have my minimal support in any way. Um, at the same time, that doesn't mean that um, they will be able to do it. That I do not know. Um, I do know that in, if, if history is any kind of um, way of looking at things, um, whenever people have won important improvement in their lives, that was the result of their struggles. It was not the result of giving up um, and, and assigning someone else to fight for them. That, that never worked well for anyone. Um, if people want to do, um, if people want to improve their situation, have a better life, have a more meaningful life, they cannot do that by trusting someone else to do it for them. So unless you know, whether Bernie Sanders gets elected or not, whether some other uh, progressive politician gets elected or not, unless there is there's an actual self-activity disconnected to the whole parliamentary race, if there is some kind of activity that pressures and puts pressure all the time on capital um, to make some gains, it doesn't matter who it is who is in power. That's the only comment yeah, I can make. I, I think that's really important. That's a point that Kim Moody has made as well, because he's, skepti he's skeptical of electoral politics as a vehicle for progressive change, really. But the, the kind that stands the best chance of being effective is definitely the kind that comes out of some sort of grassroots popular movement and not the other way around. Definitely. But I want to I wanna draw attention to one thing. Syriza claimed, and that's what a lot of people believed, especially abroad, that they were connected to the movement. Mm. They, they claimed that what they're doing in parliament, in parliament is supported by a broad movement. And they constantly said that we need the support of these movements in order to go forward. So they tried to create this idea that they're, they're somehow intrinsically connected. And that might sound a bit like what I said before. But I want to make it clear. When people actually get together and struggle for their lives, that usually... Um, is something that politicians and people who are in parliament see as hostile because they cannot control that. And that, that usually means that social movements um, are quite odd, often treated with hostility by the same people who said that they want their support. What they basically mean by that when they say that they want their support is they want someone to just applaud their decisions and just make no fuss whatsoever. That's what um, left-wing politicians usually mean when they mm. say that we want to be connected to movements. So the existence of movements is often in contradiction and against what any kind of government, especially sometimes a left-wing government, is actually doing. Excellent. That's so true. So on a similar topic... Um, that Jacobin article that Sean cited earlier um, ultimately concluded that Syriza created this crisis, first of all, instead of, you know, their actions being overdetermined by the crisis. And the answer to these kinds of problems is, quote unquote, international solidarity. And they left it kind of vague as to what they meant by that. But um, what do you think of Giannis Varoufakis and Bernie Sanders idea of a, quote unquote, progressive international um, we know that even social democracy in one country is not possible because of capital flight or uh, even 
the ability of the ruling class to like put your elected representatives in jail at any time, like we saw with Lula in Brazil. Um, but could we have social democracy in all countries? Um, would things have gone differently for Greece if they'd had uh, Derlinka in Germany, Corbyn's Labour Party in the UK, Bernie Sanders in the US, Lula in Brazil? I'll even include AMLO in Mexico in there, because that is a position that I've seen from a lot of people on kind of the Jacobin uh, democratic socialist left right now. Well, I would say, of course, international solidarity or what I prefer to call anti-national solidarity in the sense that it's, it goes against the idea of national sovereignty mm. is absolutely essential um, for making struggles um, move beyond their limitations. One of the reasons that the, 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 the situation in Greece was so limited was precisely the fact that it was isolated. Um, what was happening in Greece was happening in other places at the same time, but what we had instead of some kind of um, collaboration and, and coexistence and co-creation of trouble, uh, we had each country in the Eurozone treating the crisis and the management of the crisis as a, as within a national narrative, right? as a national humiliation. So the calls that the left had for international solidarity were completely abstract and, non, and non-realistic. They never tried to do anything practical in order to make that solidarity have an actual effect. So, for example, I would say call for a general strike all across Europe, right? That would have been something that, you know, could have had some significant offense, effects. There was never a situation like that. So, in, in a sense, I think the question is always the same. Do you support a form of organization and a form of management or a form of governance that is top-down, Right or not, if you if you accept the idea that there's a there's a, a small set of people who would go there because they're experts, because they're better than anyone else, because they know the situation better, and they are the ones who will be eventually responsible for making things better, then you're going to lose no matter how progressive these politics are going to be, because as soon as this as soon as anyone gets elected within the system, there is a specific framework that limits their actions, whether they want it, whether they like it or not. There, is, there's, there are very clear limitations. So if eventually what's going to happen is that they will, they will be forced to capitulate to forces that are stronger than their own um, power, and then they will blame that on the people who are underneath and are not supporting you know, their struggle for whatever. And then the people underneath are obviously going to be in the same position as they were before. At the same time, if you had the reversal of that, if you had people at the grassroots level mobilizing and constantly putting pressure, then none of these people would be in a position to to actually control the situation or the narrative or anything like that. Yeah, that's so true. And it reminds me of something that someone in DSA said, which is, uh, you know, since we left the Socialist International, maybe we should think about joining this like Farifakis Sanders Progressive International. And my response to that was, um, nothing that comes from the top down is ever going to be a real socialist international. And what we should be doing is forming, we should be focusing on forming a workers international that is so powerful and so great that they will want to join us. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. But we wouldn't let them join, right? <laughs> of course not. They Hard could block. beg, they Hard could block. beg, but we wouldn't let them. We'd say, yeah, just go do your own thing. It's a quick story. I was at uh, a, the New School Occupation earlier this year, which we did an episode about, and Giannis Varoufakis was speaking at the school, and he stopped by. And I, I sort of realized that this occupation was not quite as militant as the ones we had in the past when everybody was just like, oh, Varoufakis is coming. This is great. Let's pose for a picture with him. I want to touch like, his black leather jacket. Uh, I feel like we should do something bad to him, but I'm, yeah, I'm going to stay out of it. He wants to be with common people. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to protest with common people like us. So, again, I have to say, I'm not a fan, but he has received a lot of shit which is not warranted. I mean, he's... he's He's much more um, 
He's much more consistent and honest than most people that go around, especially in the left. You don't think he should have been beaten up in Exarchia that one time? Not really. Oh. Not really. But I would I say think. that for a lot of people, right? I would, I would say <laughs> okay. I don't think the idea of beating up politicians in itself is, is, is what about, necessarily progressive. What about podcasters? Podcasts should definitely be beaten up. <laughs> what about ringing the bell of media personalities, the doorbell? Well, I mean, that, that's too much. I think we're going to dangerous territory. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll save it for the... For the uh, save it uh, for the bonus. bonus. Um, a, a real quick story on that, too. It was funny in the United States because I've uh, been a listener of Behind the News with Doug Henwood for many, many years. And Giannis Varoufakis was just a, a, a guest he would have on all the time uh, before this whole crisis hit. And then in the, uh, in the analysis of the crisis, and then um, all of a sudden, you know, like the next day, he's the, you know, the finance, finance minister, minister yeah. of Syriza. It was, it was pretty wild because uh, he was definitely on the radar here. But your book, um, again, tremendous book. Folks should uh, really pick it up if they're interested the in this. Um, it provides, I think, one of the most clear and sort of concise analyses I've seen of this uh, breakdown of the Keynesian Fortis compromise. Uh, it happens in the 70s, you know, in much of the world, but it appears to happen in the in the 80s because things are a little slower over there in Greece. So many folks uh, on the left, you know, in the United States and elsewhere are arguing about the, a break from now this regime, this neoliberal or monetarist regime that we've had. And they look back to this golden age and they want a sort of neo-Keynesianism. So since it seems in retrospect, you know, looking back at the account that you made, uh, that both the form and the content of this world historical turn was in a sense overdetermined by the laws and the needs of uh, capitalist accumulation. Was there even a way out of the crisis of the 1970s without directly uh, confronting the profit system itself? Because we seem to be in this similar moment and something is happening right now, right? What are the implications of the left for today and as Jamie alluded to, even in terms of profits and, and uh, having a, a viable capital system, could it even bear the weight of a new social democracy at this moment? Well, the, 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 the problem with, with Keynesian um, economic policies and suggestions is that one can only take it very seriously if they somehow wipe out the last 40 years, right? So if you, if you take that out, and, and, and you take out the, the reason why Keynesian economic policies became obsolete, then you might think that there's a chance to go back to that. Well, they became obsolete because people uh, lost their way and got greedy and forgot themselves, right? Like, that's exactly, the prevailing yeah. narrative among liberals and social democrats. Yeah, yeah. Somehow something happened in the mid-70s that nobody can explain, uh, whereby people just became extremely individualist consumers and did not care about anyone else. In fact, I, there I are explanations Milton, for I that. I blame right? Milton Friedman, but if you might have another explanation. He had, he had something to do with it, for sure. Um, but, I mean, it was more than that. I mean, it was basically a crisis of profitability, and that's quite important. Um, Keynesian economic policies were no longer in a position uh, to sustain profitability for capital um, at the rate that they expected one. And um, it had created a kind of class compromise, and that had been beneficial even for economic growth, but at a certain point, it stopped being so. Um so what capital and, and its managers needed to do is find a way out of that gridlock. And Keynesianism could not do that. Because what you had until that point, until the 70s, and this is a bit nerdy techno stuff, but like... You're, a, you're what, in a safe space for that. Go ahead. Yeah, what you had was capital controls around the globe. So you had each national economy developing somehow independently 
There was, of course, trade. There was, of course, um, relations like that. But there were capital controls that kind of protected economic development. So the Keynesian idea, which is basically could be summed up to, you know, you get people to dig a hole and pay them for that, and then you get them to fill up that hole and pay them for that too. Because all that money stays within the economy. So these people are going to get paid to do something that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But they're going to use that money to buy things that are produced here, and that circulates. All of that kind of works within the national economy, right? As soon as the, the, the borders are open and you have like competition and you have like outflows and inflows of capital from different places, these same workers might get the money and then go buy an iPhone that's made in China. So that doesn't help your economy at all. So the pressures from like relief, from stopping capital controls and all that is what created the problem with Keynesianism. The idea that 40 years later, with the extent of globalization that we have today, which became even more obvious with the crisis, like you had a, you had a, you had a problem in the subprime mortgage market in the United States, which was less than 6% of the whole uh, real estate market, and suddenly the global economy freezes down, right? So it's pretty clear there's some interconnection there, which is not very easy to, to, to roll back. So the idea that you can, in that situation, which is much, much more open, free trade, you know, the, the idea of national economic coordinates is, is just not that important anymore for any kind of, um, any kind of sense of economic development. Um, you can't just go back and pretend that we are going to recreate the nice elements of we had of the welfare Keynesian model of the 50s and 60s just because we feel like it, right? That's not the reason they gave them up, right? And it's not the reason they can pick them up. Yeah, I mean, even like if, if we just imagine a thought experiment, I mean, we go uh, Sam Harris, uh, you know, Marxist here. Um, even if you could create something like that, um, is there enough social surplus being created through the accumulation of capital right now that it even could be uh, redistributed, as they say, without actual, with, with enough profits remaining in order for there to be increased accumulation? Yeah, because people look at uh, profits right now and they look at sort of the bourgeois indicators uh and profits look like they're fine because they're looking at you know a number they're not uh taking the theory of value and the marxist rate of profit in its totality i think that is where a lot of people uh kind of start talking past each other on this well i mean you know statistical data um is something that uh, it has been said a lot you can torture the data until they confess, right? Um, so you can use data to, to prove more or less anything you want. Um, I don't like to get involved in discussions about whether the rate of profit has gone down or up. This is something that it's concerns a lot of marxologists around here, around here, around the world. Um, there's a lot of people much more qualified and smart I don't find this discussion particularly interesting because, to be honest, I don't think it changes much. Mm. Whether I mean, in the, in, the, in the general scheme of things, you could say, you know, whatever, but it doesn't, it doesn't offer any indication of where there's going to be some kind of social explosion, where there's going to be a possibility for that explosion to become actually subversive. It doesn't say anything about that. In fact, what it does, it kind of focuses on very key and central um, aspects of economic management, you know, that is completely beyond, you know, subjective um, relations and... and, and the things that I'm more interested in. So I don't like that kind of discussion. What I would say and I find interesting is this. It is not possible to return to a former social democracy the way we had it in the 50s and 60s in no way whatsoever, especially unless you roll back the whole process of globalization, which again seems completely impossible. And in many cases, the same social democrats who are calling for that uh, return are not, are not actually saying that they're going to roll back globalization, right? So they want to they have both. Even if that was, if there was any speculative 
possibility for that to happen, you can only do that by closing down national borders. And this brings us to the question, why is it that in many cases the, the, the anti-globalization expressions of today belong to the right? And I think this is precisely the point, because the only way that you can have some kind of economic development within national borders is by excluding anyone who does not belong in that area, right? But what about the idea that if we were able to impose some sort of uh, international standards uh, for wages or worker protection or whatever, and that it would decrease the, uh, the ravages of globalization or the motivation for capital to uh, shift its location from one country to another? Well, I would be completely in favor of that, right? To be honest, if we manage to impose, right, um, like a set of measures that protect us against capital, right, that would be fantastic. The question is, how do you do that? And what kind, of what kind of strategy could you use to achieve that? Because at the end of the day, that is what we want, right? We want to somehow, at an international level, make it impossible for capital to keep exploiting um, and the way it's doing it today. So, uh, you know, a kind of unification of working class people around the world would be a fantastic thing. The question is, how do you do that, right? And the only way to do it is by focusing on working class activity itself, and find ways through which that activity could be connected rather than expecting some politician or some expert and some economist to come and say, you know, this is, this is the, the way to do it, this, vote for me, and then I will, be, you know, I will be responsible and mediate between those different trade unions and we're all going to have a really nice um, mm. global situation. I don't think that's the way to do it. But, th but the goal is, is fantastic in itself. I think that's what, what, that's what we want. So given that fact, and I mean, it seems so logical to me uh, as a worker, but... Given that um, the, the, the problems posed by globalization and um, the different ways of solving it, why is all of this Eurosceptic energy and anti-globalization fervor coming from the right instead of the left when, I mean, we just said it, an international workers' movement would be just as effective? Is it just that the left is really weak right now? Well, in some cases, it did come from the left, and 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 many of the many of the slogans that have become that have been appropriated by the right today, did do originate from the anti-globalization movement of the early uh, of the late nineties, uh, which was in in all possible ways a left-wing uh, movement. Um, a lot of this um, talk about anti-globalization against NAFTA, against the WTO, we used to demonstrate um, in in global meetings. Um, against all that stuff. And today, you hear people like Trump talking about the same stuff. And that's kind of a, a bit confusing. Um, but what we did have also in the past from the left was a kind of idea that you need national sovereignty in order to fight against speculative finance. You need this idea of the state, the national state, protecting its citizens from the abstract forces of the global economy. That was very much present in the left as well. Today, that has taken the form which, which is, in a way, a logical conclusion of that. If you think that national sovereignty is a way to defeat the global economy, that means you have to protect your national citizens, and that presupposes excluding those who are not part of your nation, nation state, right? So you close the borders, you keep open borders for trade, for commodity, but you close the borders in order to stop labor moving around, right? And being able to, to kind of potentially, you know, create trouble or demand different things. So all these things that the left used to think about and, 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 and talk about in slogan form suddenly became a bit more real the moment globalization itself stopped being as effective for, for capitalist profitability as it was in the past because of the crisis and all that. 
And then all these things became right-wing slogans because they added the extra element of like, you know, we're going to add something about migrants and be very serious about that. Right. Could it just be that the leftist solutions are way more complicated to explain to people? <laughs> like, and you hear Trump, Trump doesn't say globalization. He says globalist. And that means something very different to people where you shift the blame from the capitalist system itself and from the bosses and the ruling class to the people in other countries or the Jews or whatever. I think what we're circling around here is that the, the crisis of 10 years ago brought people to start thinking about how to live differently. And Greece, as, as bearing the brunt of a lot of the austerity from that crisis, you know, had some very dramatic scenes. You know, that played out in a number of ways, including riots, mutual aid networks, occupations, but then also the electoral route, um, intense uh, racism, a rise of a, a fascist party, a rise of a um, more authoritarian police state in a lot of ways. And yet, and, and after all of this, the conditions that led to that crisis have remained completely unchanged as they've remained everywhere in the world. And we're going to see another crisis again. And uh, and what you're saying is that the, the problem is that we haven't gone this route of working class self-activity, um, something that maybe you could see through a mutual aid network, for instance. But it makes sense that people wouldn't see a mutual aid network as scalable to like state power. Can we fight fire the the forest fires in California with uh, with mutual aid? I'm not sure. The well, question the state that not, is not doing a good job either, right? No, but um, <laughs> I, you know the the state's the only one that can do a bad job. I think. <laughs> so, how do you think the, the next crisis is going to play out, or the the continuation of this crisis, mm -hmm. um, uh, either in Greece or in peripheral countries and throughout the entire global capitalist system? Well, I think I think you're right. First of all, in, in talking about the continuation of the crisis and not on next crisis, I think it's quite significant to say that because a lot of people are talking about. There's a lot of economists at the moment predicting that the next crisis is going to come in the next year and a half or two years, blah blah blah. Okay. But what that presupposes is that the, the previous crisis is over. I don't think that is the case. Um, what what the previous crisis exposed and continues to do so is the fact that you know if things get really difficult for capital profitability they're prepared to do anything um in order to to restore first of all stability and then potentially um some kind of growth but first of all stability this is at the moment stability means avoiding collapse and this was this is what we've had for the last 8 10 years it doesn't mean a return to growth it doesn't mean um a return to anything resembling growth um it just means that we avoided the worst the catastrophe um so in that sense, we're just continuing along the same path, right? Um, whether a new form of financial crisis in specific sectors, probably quite similar to the ones that happened in 2007 or 2008, um, will reintroduce like, massive uh, instability in the system, that remains to be seen. That is a possibility, of course. From our perspective, I would say, um, it's quite important to, to learn the fact that we lost, right, in our struggles. Um, I'm talking about Greece. This is very, very significant to understand um, because it also plays about a part about how to think about the future. We'd, people fought in Greece in many different ways. They, they tried different strategies, but eventually they lost, right? That, that means that the austerity continued, the, the, the situation deteriorated, people's lives were in many ways irreversibly uh, destroyed. At the same time, um, nothing gets lost in historical time. The fact that we lost doesn't mean that this is the end forever. It means a lot of times these, these lessons 
are, are used as stepping stones for the next movements. A lot of the movements that develop, even spontaneously, or it seems spontaneously, they carry this historical lesson uh, of the past. And they, and they kind of like, sometimes they, they never start from scratch, right? There's always this kind of like, maybe subconsciously in a certain way, there's this kind of realization that the limits of the previous movements have to be um, overcome and they, they kind of immediately get overcome when the new set of like social antagonism breaks out. And this is, for example, one of the main problems I have with today's left and social democratic um, proponents. They want us to ignore the limitations of previous movements. They want us to pretend as if none of that was, was, was kind of limited. You know, this whole idea of you know, recreating trade unions and strong political parties with parliamentary uh, candidates and left wing, these are things that, have, that, that were already exposed as problematic and limited by radicals of the 60s and 70s, right? Any kind of radicalism that existed at the time was going against this idea. So the idea that recreating that moment of history today would be you know, a progressive move is basically saying that we should not look at history at all. But couldn't they then use that same argument against us when uh, looking at these kinds of global popular uprisings and saying, well, your, your methods didn't work either, right? Yes, they could. But as, as Bordiga would say, <laughs> we only have to win once. <laughs> they have to win all the time. That's so true. <laughs> and I think that's a good segue into my final question, uh, which is, we like to end this show on a positive note. Oh, that was my positive note. To the degree note. that we can. <laughs> the uh, call, a call to action, Nobody's perhaps. more positive than Bordigas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking I, I of, with that. in the future, I'm going to do a Bordigas call to armchair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. So, we'll see what is to be done? Um, do you see any hope in any of the popular uprisings that are happening right now around the world? Um, do you have any suggestions for what the anti-capitalist left can do to further our goals of uh, ending the wage system and transitioning to some sort of global socialist society um, amid the crisis that is continuing right now um, or even in the midst of a greater crisis that's most definitely coming either due to a uh, capitalist crisis or ecological catastrophe or both? Um, wh what is to be done? Where, where do you find hope? Or do you? From Bordiga to Lenin in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for us, Pablo? Um, well, I would say, um, well, because the situation is so bleak at the moment, right? I think, I think generally what we see is like a, a growing tendency where the only possibility of an alternative to this neoliberal, globalized, blah, 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 uh, seems to be some kind of national protectionist nonsense. Um, because the situation is bleak, I think the best thing we could do at the moment is take a step back from this like furious um, seeking for like the, the next perfect example of like a left-wing government, take a step back, look at the, pr the last few years, look at those movements that developed. From an armchair, perhaps. From an armchair, yeah. You could do it standing up. It, it's okay. <laughs> but the idea is to look in the right direction and try to, to find those elements in those movements that actually had the potential of creating something new. And then look at those things examine their limitations and, th and see how this could be somehow replicated, right? I think that's the best thing we can do at the moment because there were moments of extreme antagonism, of extreme beauty, of extreme subversion that were happening uh, from which we can learn a lot of things. The fact that they're over now doesn't mean that they're, they're gone forever and we have a lot to learn from that. So instead of just running behind contemporary events and constantly trying to be like, you know, um, 
on the edge of what is new and trendy and fantastic, we should take a back a step back and, and, and look at those moments as 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 yeah, as moments of you know, as, as lessons, right? Something that we can learn from that by being critical, by by looking at it very critically and, and examining, you know, the limitations as I said, but then moving on and saying, Okay, how do we do it better next time? So I guess what you're saying is that you do not have one weird trick to transition from capitalism to socialism. And it's up to us to think for ourselves and figure it out. I do have it, but I don't want to say it live. It's a, <laughs> there is a trick, but I mean, we'll save it for the bonus. The fun. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not